This is Rob Goldstone, editor of Current Directions in Psychological Science. Our guest today is Dr. Philip Ferdoin, Associate Professor in the Faculty of Psychology and Neuroscience at the University of Maastricht in the Netherlands. He is the author of the recently published article, Do Social Networking Sites Influence Wellbeing? The Extended Active Passive Model. Thank you very much for being here, Philip. Uh, thank you for inviting me. So you study how people use social networking sites such as Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. To begin putting things in context, how big a part of people's lives are these social networking sites? How much time do people spend on them and how has that been changing over the, the last several years? Well, social networking sites clearly uh, are a major part today of people's people's lives, people's daily lives. Um, and, and this all happened within a relatively short time span. I mean, when you think about it, if the, uh, one of the older social networking sites we all know, Facebook, was founded in 2004. So in less than 20 years, everyone now knows Facebook. Um, I think you need to really uh, search for someone who, never, who has never heard of Facebook uh, today. Um, Facebook, for example, has about 3 billion monthly active users. Um, of course, there are many other uh, popular social networking sites. Um, think of uh, Instagram, for example, more than 1 billion users. TikTok, more than 1 billion users. And the list is sort of endless because there are hundreds of social networking sites out there. Many of them you probably never heard of. Sometimes they're only, only uh, popular in certain countries. But Clearly, a lot of social networking sites, a lot of users of those platforms, and they spend a lot of time there. So the worldwide average um, of uh, social networking site use, social media use, is about uh, two hours uh, each day. Now, this is an average. If you go to, let's say, the somewhat younger population, even though also older people use social networking sites a lot nowadays, but in the younger populations, the numbers are even higher. So clearly, social networking sites are basically everywhere. They even um, replaced, partially replaced, a number of um, other technologies, think about television viewing, which has become less popular, printed press, which is less popular, uh, uh, and so on. So yes, I mean, social networking sites, they are a big deal. Okay, you've completely convinced me about that fact, that if you want to understand human behavior, you're going to have to be looking at our use of these social networking sites. So in terms of that, a natural follow-up question is, does using these sites actually make us happier? In answering that question, I take it from your article that a standard distinction that has been made has been between uh, active and passive uses of social media. So with that distinction in mind, um, in the standard model, how does uh, an active versus passive perspective play out in terms of our well-being? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that is the big question, right? How do these social networking sites impact our, our well-being? Um, well, this has been studied, and active-passive is indeed an important distinction, but this distinction was originally not, not it was not immediately made, let's say. So, um, given the continued popularity of social networking sites and more and more people, also the general public, wondering, okay, what are the consequences? Hundreds of studies looked, uh, if not more, have, have looked into the relationship between the amount of time 
of using social networking sites and well-being. And um, sort of the average effect of firm by meta-analysis and sort of largely consensus there is that uh, social networking sites have a negative impact on well-being, but this effect is small or even very small, depending on how you interpret the correlation of minus 0.10, because that is sort of the aggregate uh, correlation between social networking site use and, uh, and well-being. Now, the problem with this correlation is that it hides a lot of important complexities because you can do so many different things on social networking sites. I mean, you can uh, post something, you can have a chat with others, you can fight with others over, over social media. Um, and there is no, also no larger consensus that the impact of social networking sites on well-being depends on how you use it. And of course, the amount of time is sort of mute uh, regarding how people use uh, social networking sites. So then the big question is, what types of usage are adaptive? What types are maladaptive? And in this discussion, the active-passive distinction was, was originally uh, introduced. And well, to briefly explain it, what is active and passive usage about is that active usage is uh, encompasses or refers to all the activities you can do on social networking sites that facilitate interactions with other users. So basically when you use social networking sites actively, you typically reach out to others. Uh, you, post a you post a status update, you post a picture, a video, a comment, you send a direct message to someone. So typically you produce content, you really engage. The opposite is passive usage. When you engage in passive usage, you don't really reach out to other people. You, you don't really post anything yourself. You just check what others have been posting. So you basically consume rather than produce information. Um, um, so that is then the passive usage. Now, in terms of consequences for well-being, um, according to the original formulation, let's say, of active-passive model or active-passive hypothesis, active usage would be, let's say, the way to go in the sense that if you would use uh, social networking sites actively, you would, uh, on average at least, you could expect an increase uh, in well-being because this way of using social networking sites, it elicits feelings of connectedness because you really reach out to others, right? It increases your social capital, which is somewhat difficult words simply to refer to, let's say, instrumental, the emotional support uh, you get from other people, informational support, tips and tricks you might hear from other people. But that requires active use, or at least strongly facilitated by Passive use, on the other, on the other hand, would uh, have, on average, a negative impact on uh, social, uh, on, um, on well-being because it may uh, elicit damaging social comparisons. Because if you continuously consume all the content others have posted, other people typically post their highlights, their successes, everyone looks great on social networking sites and consuming this type of information uh, may uh, elicit damaging social comparison, which then in turn negatively impact um, well-being. So this is, let's say, the difference between the two usage types and um, different consequences for well-being, at least according to the original formulation of the model. Great. Thanks a lot for that answer. So in your current directions piece, you work to extend beyond that simple active versus passive model that you just described. So why do you find that model insufficient? Uh, and what factors do you argue should be additionally considered? Mm -hmm. Well, nice thing about 
the active passive distinction in and of, in and of itself is it's really two fundamentally different ways of engaging with social networking sites. It's also parsimonious. It's only uh, two types of usage. But recent findings, let's say that most research up until 2017, 2018, were largely consistent with the active passive uh, claims. Um, uh, but especially the last couple of years, quite a few papers came out which uh, uh, revealed evidence which was conflicting with, let's say, the active-passive uh, framework. So there were papers showing that active usage did not uh, have an impact on well-being or even could have a negative impact. The other the same holds for passive usage. So there were a number of papers showing that it could have no impact or even a positive impact on well-being. So clearly, this evidence revealed that the active-passive distinction is too coarse. It should be refined. There should be boundary conditions. And this is uh, sort of what we want to do in the, the current paper we are discussing, where, where we are presenting the extended active-passive uh, model, where we extend it in a number of ways. And uh, let me uh, try to briefly explain two ways uh, where, that we extend it. Um, first of all, we want to decompose this active usage category. So active usage, it's a broad category. Remember, it's posting status updates, sending direct messages, uh, posting uh, videos, uh, whatever. Um, the idea was that active usage elicits feelings of connectedness, uh, a gruel of social capital. Uh, but not all ways or all subtypes of active usage may do so. And we know from fundamental research uh, in psychology and also in other fields that one key aspect in order to feel connected with others is reciprocity. If I am talking all the time and the other person never shares anything him or herself with me or never responds, then it's difficult to feel connected with others or, or and, and have these uh, increments in, in, let's say, in social capital. So reciprocity is a thing. Now, to elicit reciprocity, uh, some ways or subtypes of active usage are better than others. And here, it's meaningful to make a distinction between targeted and non-targeted active usage. So non-targeted active usage is, for example, I post a status update. This can be read by, well, everyone who follows me or I am connected to, but I don't really target it to a particular person or a small group of people. This is different with, um, so that was non-targeted. The targeted active usage is where you, for example, send a direct message to some one particular person, or you have a small group chat with a number of friends on some topic you, you like. When you engage in targeted usage, simply because of the norm of reciprocity, if I send you a direct message, I sort of expect you to reply, there is a higher probability of re-engaging in a meaningful interaction. So targeted usage has a higher probability of eliciting feelings of connectedness, in, uh, an increase in well-being than non-targeted. However, obviously, and this is important, um, this targeted use should be, let's say, warm in nature or agreeable in nature rather than cold or quarrelsome type of behavior, right? So especially warm targeted uh, usage might uh, be good to elicit feelings of uh, connectedness. Cold usage, whether it's targeted or non-targeted, think about cyberbullying, think about hate speech, uh, obviously it's not going to do the trick to elicit feelings of, uh, of social uh, connectedness. And this type of cold usage, which are also active ways of using social media, are typically not going to elicit uh, feelings of social connectedness. This is, let's say, part one, so decomposing active usage. Part two is you could do something similar with passive usage. 
So remember the idea of passive usage is illicit damaging social comparisons, which then uh, negatively impacts well-being. Now, of course, not all types of content elicit damaging social comparisons because people post, uh, you can read the news on social media, you can read about other people's accomplishments, but you can read all sorts of, of, of stuff on, on social media. Now we know, again, from fundamental research on social comparison that um, people have especially a tendency to compare themselves with others when information is self-relevant. So relevant for themselves or their own identity. A simple example, if you have a graduate student, uh, most graduate students um, like to publish, it's good for their career, good for their, um, for their CV, uh, maybe also good for their ego. Uh, and if they uh, would, for example, read on, uh, on Twitter that a fellow graduate student published this very important paper in a very important journal, then at least some of them might feel a bit of envy, might even perhaps feel a little bit inferior compared to them. Now, if they would read that a fellow graduate student uh, won some swimming contest, uh, most likely this will not elicit envy unless that person would also be into swimming. But uh, otherwise, it's not relevant for the self. So especially self-relevant information, which is only part of the information of social media, would elicit these damaging uh, social comparisons. And again, of course, only when the self-relevant information of others is about successes. Right. Um, if the other person would, uh, the fellow graduate student would write that his person that his paper got rejected, well, envy is unlikely uh, to occur. Now, people typically share their successes rather than their failures. Even though lately people start more often also uh, to provide some counterweight, maybe uh, also share uh, failures a little bit more often. So these are like two different ways already to extend the original active passive. Uh, distinction by, by looking into subtypes of active and passive use. Uh, warm targeted uh, communication, eliciting, especially eliciting uh, social uh, capital, let's say, and especially uh, passive consumption of uh, self-relevant information uh, and also success stories of others, um, self-relevant success stories of others, maybe that also uh, negatively impacting uh, well-being. Great, great. I appreciate the decomposition of active and passive into more nuanced factors there. So I'm guessing that different people get different things out of their interactions with social networking sites. Can you tell us something about how demographic or personality attributes play moderating roles? Yeah, uh, definitely. And I think one of, the, one of the, the main insights of the last couple of years has been this uh, the, the, this focus now on individual differences because it has been quite uh, convincingly demonstrated that the impact of overall social media usage, but also or social networking sites, usage, also active and passive usage, that the consequences differ uh, across individuals. So exactly the same action may lead one person to become happy and the other person maybe to become a bit sad. Um, then of course the big challenge is how to now explain these individual differences. And, and as you said, both demographic and personality uh, variables have been uh, examined in this context. Um, well, maybe to start with the demographic ones, um, it's a bit complex because there is this popular claim uh, that uh, especially young female users would be more vulnerable, let's say, to negative consequences of social uh, networking site use. 
But if you take if you take all the research, let's say, on social network anxiety use and well-being, then you actually see that both for gender and for age, uh, findings are quite uh, conflicting, uh, which suggests that well, uh, maybe only in particular contexts, maybe for particular outcomes, maybe for example uh, uh, for body image, maybe, uh, or maybe only for uh, certain social networking sites, maybe especially Instagram that these type of claims hold. But in general, we need to be very careful when making claims about gender and age because a lot of evidence on this is actually conflicting. And I think we need some more research, perhaps also in a somewhat more structured way to, to really uh, answer this question. But probably it, it depends um, on well-being indicators on a specific social media platform. Um, we find more consistent evidence when we look at a certain personality traits especially those traits that relate to the psychological mechanisms that connect social networking sites and well-being. Um, we discussed uh, social comparison a little bit. Um, well, people differ in their tendency to engage in social comparison. Some people compare themselves with others all the time, whereas other people, well, most people actually do it sometimes, but some people do it much less than others. And there is, um, there is evidence, um, it's also logical in a way, that people who have a tendency to compare themselves with others, um, that when they passively consume information on social media, that especially they uh, experience uh, negative consequences, uh, feelings of envy and the like, which is sort of logical. Um, for example, in contrast, people who have a high stable level of self-esteem, when they passively consume this same information, let's say, they are much more protected from it. I mean, their, self, their level of self-esteem is stable. It doesn't really depend that much on the information they see, then see that is posted by others. Something similar can be said for, let's say, the more the social capital feelings of social connectedness type of mechanism. Also here, there are individual differences in the sense that some people use social media more for interpersonal communication for others, uh, with others, and uh, some people also care more about the opinion of others. Um, and here we see that especially those people who use it for interpersonal communication and who also really care a lot about what others are saying, well, if their uh, actions are reciprocated, for example, they get many likes, they get many comments and so on, especially they are very happy when this reciprocation happens. So again, you see another layer of personality traits moderating the impact of social networking sites. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if you have any recommendations for how social networking sites should be used, uh, given that many of our readers and listeners are chronic users of social networking sites. You might have recommendations for how individuals should modify or maybe even abandon their use of networking sites, or you might have recommendations for what a socially responsible social networking company would do to improve their users' well-being. So I'll let you pick your target audience for whatever recommendations you might have. Yeah, but it's a very important question, of course, because now that we know the when we have the fundamental findings, now the next question is, okay, what is the practical uh, implications now of this? And so sometimes people ask me, okay, so how should I use social media or how should my kids be using social media? Because sometimes parents are especially concerned about their children. Um, well, maybe a few things. Um, first of all, 
people most often don't ask me how should I be using social media, but first of all, how much time should I spend uh, on social media? Um, when starting with that question first, I always strongly hesitate to say it's good to use it for one hour, two hours, or, or whatever recommendation, because again, this amount of time it's mute doesn't say anything about what people are actually doing there, right? But of course, there are limits. And uh, when you when you notice that you're getting close to those limits, it's time, it's best to reduce the amount of time you use it. When are you hitting the limits? Well, when you feel that you start, when you feel that, when you start feeling that you're uh, addicted to it, that, that when you don't, when you cannot access it, that you become irritated, nervous a little bit, when these type of symptoms start to occur, then it's probably good to lower your usage uh, somewhat. Also, if you notice that you use it that much, that it starts to replace other meaningful activities that have been shown by research or that you simply know yourself positively impact your well-being, then, uh, for example, uh, we know from research that having face-to-face -face interactions with others is very important for your well-being. Yeah? If you notice that you start using social networking sites so much that you hardly ever see any of your friends in real life, probably it's good to lower the amount of social networking sites. But this is all at the level of amount of time, right? Now, more interesting is perhaps how to use it. Um, then what I would say is if you use it, if you really want the benefits of having strong social connections with your uh, online friends, um, uh, if you want to build social capital, probably active usage will, will help if you reach out. But then especially it's good to engage in warm targeted active use. Right? Don't start uh, in, um, a Twitter a Twitter fight um, about some 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 maybe sometimes even totally irrelevant uh, subject. Um, and then of course, but then of course some people um, don't want to use it actively. So if you use it actively, I would say warm targeted use might be a good strategy. But if you say I'm I just want to know what's going on in social media, I don't want to post things myself. So if you want to use it passively, let's say. Well, then I would say, realize uh, that what you see, but that's sometimes easier said than done, realize that what you see is that this has a positive bias, that people share their highlights, their successes, their attractive uh, pictures that in reality, they look worse, they're less successful. Um, and also then specifically, if you notice that following certain accounts makes you feel miserable, then stop following those accounts. Um, and maybe a last one, which is also important is know yourself because all the effects are subject to individual differences. So it's always been difficult to give general recommendations, but if you have sufficient introspection and you know that, okay, if I do this, I notice afterwards that I feel worse, well then tailor your own social media use such that you can derive the benefits from it and, and avoid, uh, let's say. Uh, Great. So as one final question, um... I'll note that your article appears as part of a special issue of Current Directions on well-measured lives, how all of our lives are being measured more often with the results being broadcast more widely than ever before in history. And what are the implications for performance, well-being, motivation, identity? So given that special issue and going beyond the research that you directly reviewed in your article, I'm wondering how you feel about the trend for our lives to be increasingly driven by metrics of various forms. Is it good, bad? 
And what should we be keeping in mind as a society? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, metrics are everywhere. I mean, um, that, that, that is clear. Um, are they good or bad? For me, it's a little bit the same as, let's say, the social media discussion we now have. Um, there are good, and it's not inherently good or bad. I think we need to find a good way of dealing with these metrics. Um, for example, if you are a professional or if you just like running, I can imagine it's nice that you can keep pro 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 that you can keep track, sorry, of your progress that you're making, uh, and that maybe you see that over time you start running better and better. Uh, I mean, that might be nice. Or as an academic, uh, I also see advantages of having uh, Google Scholar citations where you can easily see who is citing uh, your work, which papers are, are well-received or popular. Um, I think this is all very valuable uh, information to know. So clearly there are advantages. Uh, but obviously there's also disadvantages. Eh? We talked about social comparison already quite a bit. It's very easy to start comparing your metrics with others. Uh, with other met uh, metrics of other people. Um, and there's also always this risk of, of, um, of people starting to identify too much with their, with their metrics, or maybe also equating others of value based upon their metrics. Eh? Like this person has, uh, I don't know, 50,000 followers on Instagram, so this person must be very important. And if the number of followers starts to drop, maybe people uh, start to feel less important or are perceived by others as less important. I think this type of superficial ways of, of reducing humanity to this type of metric is actually very dangerous. Um, so for me, it's not inherently good or bad. I think it's part of this new digital ecosystem that we are now living in. And we need to find ways to make use of these metrics because I think they can be beneficial, but again, same as with social media, try to avoid the dangers also inherently. Right. So that's all the time we have for our conversation with Philip Verdoin. Thank you very much, Philip, for the stimulating and hopefully highly targeted and reciprocal conversation. Thank you so much. It was very nice talking to you. 